0: We'd
1: like a word. Welcome to part two of this episode of We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we're talking about memoirs and autobiography with author Farah Bashir, who's written rumours of spring about growing up in Kashmir, and Oriel Rowe of The Memoirist. She's also <laughs> author of A Blind Fellows Chronicle and Letters. Which I laughed at a lot. Okay, and let the swine go forth. I should get that. And let the swine go forth, yeah. This love affair that I mentioned in part one, I don't know what age you were, but you were a teenager, and there was this boy called Vasim, who you liked. But the political situation got in the way.
2: I was about 15 uh, when I started noticing him he was making himself visible near my aunt's house, where I used to go often to study and write my exams because it was my school was closer to her place. That's the part which tells you that even though uh, the circumstances, the political situation was so volatile, and, but there are people who still go on about their lives as in any part of the world. So it was in the a young girl uh, noticing a boy, a boy noticing her, and they sort of are infatuated, fall in love, And they're attracted to each other. Things that happen in any geography, I mean, to anybody of that age. Yeah, so what happened was, uh, because a lot of boys were being killed, a lot of them were getting trained to be militants. A section of the society, they sent their sons away to study. So he was anyways taken away when I noticed him. He had already been studying in one of the, the states in India, Bangalore. So as it is, it was basically, it was a long distance thing. And we started writing letters to each other. And sometimes letters and the postal services were, you know, you couldn't rely on them. Phones, you couldn't rely on them. It was a very strange kind of waiting. In fact, when I used to write to him, there were more like journals, passages from journals that I would send him and tell him what was happening. It was also a very personal, intimate update while I was being very about my feelings. I wasn't sharing overtly, but I was telling him what was happening. So giving, making sure he we he bonded over, not just the personal, but also with the political. And then we found a way to keep in touch. He would send letters to his friend's place and that friend would bring them to the school. And once I remember when he showed up for the first time at the school and I was like, why is there a relative here? I mean, I knew him he was a distant relative as well and a friend. And I was like, has someone been shot? Has he come here to take me to the hospital straight? This didn't strike me. The first direction that your brain goes to is like, is someone dead? Has someone been shot? Is someone killed? You're not imagining that someone has come as a messenger of your, or, you know, someone with your love letter. And then I saw that and I was like really happy. And I remember reading that letter for, because, uh, you know, it was such a rare thing over the next two days, very slowly and going through it again and again. And I really cherished it. And that became a habit of going through things very slowly, absorbing them. But then there was a fire at the, the general post office and uh, it, it just took a very long time for that to be repaired. We, we try to keep in touch. I would try and phone him. I would literally go after these phone repair guys who would be uh, in the neighborhood and like really tell them I need to make a call and I have an urgent assignment and can you please uh, fix the phone line? But that, I could only sustain it for, for, for a bit. And by the time he would come back and visit his parents, and I remember once he came back after like four months and there was curfew and I couldn't see him, that added another level of frustration. What it also tells us is the political and personal are so intertwined. They're just not separate. You really can't plan your personal life without political sort of affecting it in some way. That is again, when I had a little bit of distance and a little bit of retrospection, is what revealed itself that they're they're so intertwined and you can't really separate the two. Um, Is that his real name? His real name is Basile. Oh, you've given it away, (laughs) you've given it away. (laughs) Edit, 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 well, edit. My, most of my family knows about him so it's fine i think he's, well, he's, he's happily married with kids now so
1: the fine. reason i ask that is because in the book it's not revealed what happens to him in the end because it's a snapshot of the time but also sure. he is a real person in your life yes so you're talking about somebody else as well and their life and i wonder oriel what kind of a factor that is when you're writing your own story and other people are, are in it what do you have to do about that do you get permission do you do what you want do you just say well this is my version
0: yeah i mean you can change names (laughs) of course yeah it's a difficult one like it, it is my version of events and um i have these versions somebody else has other other pieces of the puzzle when i was writing my full length memoir recently i was thinking of it it is true but I was writing it as if it were a novel a non-fiction novel let's say and I think that's the that's the best way to go about it it's interesting that in the, the front of the um, of, of fiction you will write these characters are not based on anybody and that little statement that you have and these events are totally fictional so I think you you can um, protect yourself by changing the names or shortening the names let's say.
1: You're supposed um, to write as if everyone you know is dead. So write without fear or yes. favour. But if you're writing about your family, then clearly people are going to work out who they are. And mm. hopefully a lot of them are still around. And these well, days, of course, these days, of course, we have Facebook.
3: I'm back in contact with most of the people I went to school with. So if I yeah. remember what I mentioned, they would very quickly realise that, that they were the, the, the best book,
0: you know, I think I had to be a little bit selective about some things that I didn't put in even if people are not living anymore because other people have fond memories of them and there was a there was one little detail that I did take out recently about somebody attempting to have an affair with somebody else and I just decided I, I really don't think I can put this in because everybody remembers these these people as a as a fine upright standing couple and um, so I just <laughs> I had it in and then recently I snipped this little, it was only a paragraph, it was a little, just a suggestion of something that almost happened but didn't. I just decided to to let that lie.
3: I have actually started writing my memoir. I'm actually quite a chunk into it and, and the sort of central spine of it, if you like, is is all about... Getting together with mates and forming a band, even though none of us could play very well, and dreams of rock stardom and all that—it was never going to happen, etc. But it's—it's all about growing up in Cornwall, and the reason I've written it really is—it's not—I'm not really thinking of publication particularly because I don't think it's an interesting enough story. Because as I said, it's—it's it's, it's entirely lacking in conflict. It's funny, I think.
0: It, Can I I've jump mainly... in there with a small comment? Because yeah, I think on. I think the normal. If it's written really interestingly, it's fine. You can go with oh, that. It doesn't always have to be the really exciting life that it's written about. It can be the mm.
3: quantity I mean, I've, written life. I've written it basically for my kids and my grandkids because I wish my grandparents had done the same. I mean, I've got a little memoir here of uh, my mum grew up on a farm in Cornwall and she had her own brother, but she also had three kind of pseudo-brothers and the fact that they had three evacuees from London brought were accepted into the farm and their parents were killed while they were there, so they ended up staying there. And the oldest of the three, Vic, actually wrote a kind of memoir, what it was like growing up there. And it's because, it's only because he wrote that, that my mum, who was quite young at the time, she was only born in 1939, so she doesn't really remember a lot of the war, obviously, Uh, She remembers them later, you know, after the war, as the kids grew up and left. But um, she didn't know a lot of it, and certainly Vic's own kids and grandkids didn't know about it. So I thought I ought to do something similar, even if it's not full of conflict and, you know, people coming in and turning my house over looking for insurgents, and there's no people shooting each other over their religious affiliations, that sort of thing. Nevertheless, there were a lot of funny, interesting things that happened, and I kind of want them recorded, even if it's just for the family, so... Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that.
2: But also, I would like to build on what Aurel is saying is, when I was writing this memoir, and I've been, I, I discarded two manuscripts, and the chapters that you read in, in my memoir, I used to call them fillers. And I was really waiting for this grand narrative to, to fall in my head and, and find, I was really waiting to write something that would like hold it all together. And I used to call them fillers, not even chapters. It's only when I once met with a friend of mine who's a writer and I was narrating these anecdotes and incidents and which I had been sort of writing again in terms of as if I was I was writing a journal and then he looks at me and he's like this is your book what which narrative are you really waiting for so sometimes what really because we've lived with it for so long because it seems ordinary to us or maybe sometimes funny it actually can be very interesting to other people. Like I remember dancing in a very dark, dingy room, which I thought was a little way of me feeling relaxed in those times. And I thought nobody would want to read that. And it's it's also like when people are dying on the streets and you're doing this. But then I realized what it was actually a little spot of sanity for me for that young girl. I think by the time if until you don't write it. And what what might seem ordinary to us might actually be valuable and useful and interesting to other people
3: your ordinary someone else is extraordinary yeah. yeah
0: people are always gossiping they're always asking questions about what did you do and they're fascinated with something quite ordinary when I when I was teaching in Cairo one of my students favorite thing was tell us the story about something and something so I, I'd i have to tell them the story again and again so that was one of the things that they loved most about my lessons my little stories about my My strange
1: life. One of the things that struck me in your book, Farah, is how there were things that were specific to girls. Everyone was caught up in this terrible situation of violence and normal life being crushed. But there were some particular ways it affected women and adolescent girls in particular. You talk about trying to shrink yourself physically when you're on the street and when you started getting your period?
2: Last year, when there were Black Lives Matter protests all over uh, US, there were riot control measures which were sort of uh, put in place. There was a lot of tear gassing. And I remember reading after that, that a lot of women who were part of those protests and who were exposed to the, those fumes from tear gas, it started affecting their period. So that was as recent as last year. But I had already written all that I had to write about that period when I was growing up and and having these uh, I had these puberty related changes. I didn't think of it then, but it whatever it is. I mean, it changed. Women sort of absorb things in a very different way. But that is one aspect of it, which is a physical manifestation of how changes, external changes, whether it's tear gas, whether it's other forms, whether it's, it's being exposed to bright light when you're sleeping and you're suddenly woken up because your house is searched. So how do you, how does a female body react to such suddenness, abruptness, changes, threats? There's also a study which tells you, for example, survivors, domestic violence survivors suffer 27% more PTSD than rape victims. I don't think enough is being sort of spoken about these things and how women sort of absorb these threatening circumstances. Uh, I haven't read uh, many reports, which sort of, I mean, you have blanket psychological terms, right? You have a PT, you have PTSD, yeah, which I really sort of also in my own little way challenge in one of the chapters saying, how can it be post-trauma? Uh, you know, it's, it's perennial, it's ongoing and it's Doctor, friend of mine, is to joke and say it should be perennially traumatic stress disorder for Kashmiris. So that is one aspect of it. And then every girl that uh, my friends, my my cousins, everyone sort of absorbed it in a very different way because the conflict touched them in different ways. My cousin, who whose brother was killed, she became extremely talkative, but she wouldn't talk about her brother. Like she doesn't leave a single. She doesn't like when you sit with her and you talk to her. It's almost like she's she goes on a pauseless, uh, breathless. It's almost as if she's rapping all the time. She does, doesn't pause. Maybe she doesn't want to deal with that. And that changed her. And then uh, there was this uh, batchmate of ours. There was this at a particular point. The militants tried to enforce a certain modest way of, a modest way of dressing, and she was thrown acid at. And she started looking different to me after that. She, as if her, her complexion sort of changed, she started looking more fearful. Or maybe I was imagining it because when she showed us the scar on her shoulder and she had a very, and she's like, oh, thank God I turned my face. And that as if she had memorized that line and she start, started appearing very differently. And then in early nineties, we'd also I heard of these uh, hush hush whispers. I mean, now, there are, there are the books written about it and there's a proper petition, the mass rape in Kunan and Poshpura. And as a girl, when one would hear of that, and I didn't really, I didn't have the language, I didn't have the grammar to ask or f- formulate questions and ask my parents or whoever, like, what does it even mean? So I thought they they were also targeting girls and they were so um, so I was my focus was to look invisible. My focus was to just really sort of disappear and in a, in a way I mean I couldn't have I, either I could have died, but I, I wanted to look physically invisible to people or to the paramilitary or the army in Kashmir so that I, there was like something bad didn't happen to me. like acid wasn't thrown on me or, or something bad, or something else didn't happen to me. So I was it was a different kind of fear. Uh, of of, a young, of growing up as a young woman and when you start growing and you're in your puberty and your body changes that's natural and you know your, your, uh, your shape changes and I remember I used to hug a file or a bag and I used to walk like that like literally with a hunch and much later I developed like I have a really bad back I have like a few slip discs and it became so weak then I realized what all. I mean, that was one aspect of it was the posture, or it was my friend looking a strange, certain, you know, strange. After that incident, my cousin sort of her her uh, her personality changing. So it different women sort of absorb these things very differently. And for me, not being able to get up and go to the washroom during period and or or even get myself another tablet if I had forgotten to take it with me to bed it was I thought at that point it was I had to live with it but much later I was like it was another it was just not pain but it was also absorbing trauma on top of pain so it's like women I feel also are dual recipients of violence in conflict zones Like a is you feel threatened directly and there is a threat to you directly and second is Women's bodies are also sort of used to shame and subjugate a people. Why so why would you
1: not get up and go to the washroom?
2: Because I could have I would have to switch on the lights. And if there was a if someone patrolling outside on the street and they would see bright light in the room, and they would start banging on the door, and you didn't know who it could be, and it would have just, you know, had like a series of unwanted events could have followed. And I just one wanted to avoid that. So it was like really wanting to be invisible, uh, make yourself not visible, uh, less troublesome to yourself, to your family, all the time.
1: That's the end of part two of this episode of We'd Like a Word, talking about memoirs and autobiography with Aurel Rowe of The Memoirist and Farah Bashir, author of Rumours of Spring. With me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. Join us for part three.